This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Foss, an investor at Irenic Capital. And today we're breaking down the biggest manufacturer of semiconductor making equipment in the world. Last week, we looked at the other leading equipment maker, ASML. And while that business currently has a higher market cap, applied materials generated more revenue and earnings last year. Its top line was $26 billion. It invested $3 billion in R&D, and it currently enjoys a portfolio of 17,300 patents. To explore the business behind those numbers, I'm joined by Dylan Patel, Chief Analyst at Semi-Analysis. Dylan takes us through the industry's evolution, how Applied's business compares to ASML, and how geopolitics are a double-edged sword. Please enjoy this breakdown of Applied Materials. Dylan, thank you so much for joining us to break down Applied Materials. I think given the topic, we should probably set the stage with just some general information regarding the semiconductor industry. So I think to start, I would really value kind of your view on how you look at the industry and how it's organized and help introduce us to some of the vernacular and language that people care about when looking at this industry. Yeah. So the semiconductor industry is incredibly broad and varied. And in some regards, it's viewed as the new most important industry. It used to be energy and oil and those sorts of things. And at least some people are describing the semiconductor industry as the new most important industry. It's the backbone of all technology, which is been the backbone of all economic growth, at least in developed economies for the last few decades. So the semiconductor industry is very broad. It goes all the way from companies like Apple designing their own chips, all the way down to niche chemical companies in Japan that no one knows about. The way it sort of flows, right, if we think about from the top of the funnel down, is if you look at the Fortune 10 companies, I think seven or eight of them design their own chips. But then that flows down to, okay, who are they working with to help them design these chips, right? So there's companies called fabulous design companies that actually design chips themselves. And more increasingly, they're working with the mega cap tech companies to help them design chips like the Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons. There's also a group of companies that make software for helping design chips, right? That's going to be companies like Cadence and Synopsys. Siemens has a big business there as well. They purchased a company in the US. And then there's many niche players around the world, like Global Foundries and PSMC, many, many companies that make specific kinds of chips. Maybe we're talking about automotive chips like NXP in Europe, right? Or OnSemi in the US and power semiconductors, right? How do I actually deliver power to chips? That's going to be a different kind of company, different kind of fab. You have analog chips, so like Texas Instruments, you know, they're making their own chips there. And then you go down a little bit further and you have the equipment, right? So there's multiple equipment companies. There's about eight or nine companies that sell over a billion dollars worth of equipment a year. It's a very large space, but the largest players sell over $20 billion of equipment a year. Very, very large companies in their own rights. These are going to be companies like Applied Materials, ASML, LAM Research, KLA. 
Downstream from that, they have their own supply chain of companies, which we probably won't get into too much. But also there's the chemical companies. Many of them are based in Japan as well as other places. And so there's so many different parts and you could take it so many different ways, but hopefully that's a easy to follow sort of waterfall down the industry. No, I think that's a super helpful mental model when it comes to thinking about where these profit pools sit. What's interesting to me is if you go back to like the 50s, 60s, 70s, when a lot of these companies were founded, it seems like most in the semiconductor space were vertically integrated in that the companies themselves were producing the equipment, their chips, they were participating in all parts of the value chain. And it's shifted in a lot of ways, it seems like towards more specialization. What kind of catalyzed that shift? And why is it that we have these different specialized niches within semis today? Yeah, so that's the fantastic one where IBM, Intel, but IBM especially was this, right? They made a lot of their own equipment for making chips. They made their own chips. They designed their own chips. They put them in machines, computers that they would sell people. They'd sell the software on them as well. Everything in one house. And then over time, you've got the splintering, which is, hey, maybe I don't need to do everything, right? I can only do one or two parts of the supply chain. So one of the first parts to sort of split out was actually the equipment side, right? Companies like Applied Materials and so many others start GCA, started making equipment that they would then sell to companies like Intel. But these companies still built the fab, they built the chips, they designed the chips, and many of them, right, like Motorola and Texas Instruments and IBM still built the computer. But Intel, you know, sort of one of the big first disaggregators of the industry by saying, hey, we're going to sell chips. We're not going to sell systems. Because before then, it was some of the massive American companies, as well as the massive Japanese companies like Fujitsu and such, right? These massive companies that did everything. The thing is about almost any industry is a small player is always going to be more nimble, more able to innovate, more able to focus on their one specific area rather than be a massive conglomerate, right? I mean, that's age old story against conglomerates over all of history. Intel was one of the first to do this, but then we started having more and more splintering, right? Oh, hey, instead of building the fab, building the chips and designing the chips are all of ourselves, TSMC really led this revolution, right? TSMC being the world's biggest foundry in the world saying, hey, we're not going to design the chips. We're only going to build them. You give us the specification. Obviously, we work very closely with you and it's very involved process on both sides, but they didn't actually design any of the chips themselves. And this is what allowed companies like NVIDIA, who started as a completely fabless company, right? Did not ever have a fab themselves to be like an asset light sort of business, design their own chips for innovative use cases, whether it was graphics at first or eventually AI and so many other inflections in between, they were able to do this. It allowed companies like Apple to go, hey, actually we want to design chips for our own products, right? Because we have unique use cases. It gives us a competitive advantage in the market. So let's design our own chips and let's go out and get TSMC, this contract manufacturer, to fabricate them. In the past, there was these design companies or these integrated companies also made their own software for designing chips. They would actually put all of the data related to a chip design, either on paper, but then eventually onto tapes. Tapes as in like the old storage format of data. They put them onto tapes. There's actually a classical term that still persists. It's called tape in, which is when you send the tape from the design guys to the fab guys. And so it's called tape in because that was a formal transition. But eventually that sort of split. As everything got more computerized, the whole age of what's called electronic design assistance happened, right? And now there were third-party companies making software to help you design chips. Now, these EDA companies, electronic design assistants, these companies don't know how to make a chip. 
They don't know how to design one, but they know how to make the software for it. There's efficiencies in terms of shared R&D, in terms of, hey, what helps this person, helps this person as well, right? There's constant improvement, bigger base of people to sell your stuff to, right? It kind of proliferated and allowed more and more and more companies to innovate into this industry, right? Hey, we can have this niche and we don't need to be a massive conglomerate to be able to do everything in the industry all at once because there's these abstraction layers between every single layer. Seemingly, Adam Smith's wealth of nations around division of labor and specialization bring extremely true in this market. The last couple of decades have been characterized by globalization and collaboration amongst leading players within the industry in tougher geopolitical backdrops. You have obviously conflict with China. You've got the standing of Taiwan. It seems like there's kind of a shift with geopolitics and how they're impacting the industry. And so before we go deeper into applied materials and how that potentially impacts their business, what is kind of the geopolitical backdrop that's impacting the semiconductor industry you know, writ large? So over the last decade or so, there have been a handful of investments to accelerate the semiconductor industry, right, in various respective geographies, especially South Korea to some extent, but really China, right, trying to get into the industry. And no one really batted an eye, right? China's had strategic national objectives to get into many industries in the past, and they've been somewhat successful depending on the industry. But with COVID-19 and the lockdowns in 2020, everything kind of changed, right? Because all of a sudden, just-in-time manufacturing didn't work. Anyone who canceled orders and then tried to put them back on and their capacity got reallocated, you know, there was a lot of supply chain turmoil. And this really spoke volumes about the semiconductor industry, right? Because the semiconductor industry is probably one of the most complex supply chains in the world, especially when you talk about numbers of companies involved in it from top to bottom and how technologically difficult it is and how geographically distributed it is. But furthermore, how little competition there is in so many segments of it. There's so many segments where it's just two or three players and that's it. And for there to be a fourth player, it requires nation state level subsidies, which is exactly what's happening, right? Is nation state level subsidies now and investments. And so you end up with this tremendous like difficulty with trying to increase production, you end up with shortages, you end up with so many supply chain issues that then makes everyone wake up, you know, culminating in you know, the automotive industry, not being able to get any chips, waking up and telling the personal consumer, right? And the governments like, because, you know, automobiles have always been heavily, let's say, regulated and heavily watched as far as governments go. So it culminated in the automotive industry really waking up the general consumer about, oh gosh, chips are very important. And we need a very stable supply of them. And oh, by the way, all of our chips for this one kind come from this place. And all of the chips of this kind come from this other place. Just as an example, as a funny aside, in the late 90s, there was a Japanese chemical plant that blew up and it shut down production of like 80% of the industry. Now, the industry was able to recover pretty quickly, but this is how concentrated the industry really is, right? I said it's in the 90s, but I mean, there's many aspects where this still range true today, right? Like every single iPhone relies on Taiwan Semiconductor, right? Which is obviously wrapped in geopolitical narrative with Taiwan elections and China and all of this sort of stuff. So you're looking at very, very geographically distributed, concentrated, and politically vulnerable supply chains. And so now that you've done a great job bringing us up to speed on current state of play. I look at Applied Materials, which has gone from five years ago, it was a $30 billion enterprise value company. Today, it's well over 100. Can you just 
explain to me where applied materials fits into this entire semiconductor equation? So applied materials is the largest equipment company in the world for manufacturing semiconductors. And so they produce this equipment, which then gets shipped to your major companies like TSMC, like Samsung, like Intel, and many, many more, but those are the biggest players. And then this equipment helps manufacture semiconductors, right? You produce the wafers, you produce the chips, different kinds of equipment for different kinds of chips. And then they also service that equipment and they also help intimately with the R&D process for next generation chips because the equipment needs to be very much intimately involved there, helps make sure that the production yields are good. And they also are involved in a few other small businesses like display. They make equipment for making displays, but really it's about making this equipment to ship to TSMC so they can actually make chips. And so over, call it 50 years, this company has obviously evolved a ton. What are kind of the most important parts of their story? I think there's a lot in the very early days that's interesting and important to watch. But I think to gloss over that, there was a long period of M&A, right? Where they acquired companies, they merged with companies, and applied materials slowly built their portfolio of many different kinds of equipment that they're the leader in, right? Because unlike the second largest equipment company in the world, ASML, the Dutch company, who primarily makes one type of equipment. You know, of course, they sell a few other types. They make one type of equipment, right? Lithography equipment. Applied Materials makes many types of equipment. And so this company is really the story of two sort of folds, right? One is they were in this period where they were doing well, they were out executing, but they were also merging and acquiring and building up this broad portfolio. And then for the last maybe decade, they've sort of not been able to acquire companies anymore, right? It culminated in this acquisition of Tokyo Electron, which is Japan's biggest equipment company and one of the top four equipment companies in the world. They weren't allowed to merge with them. And so Applied Materials sort of had a different complete shift, right? Which is, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't look for acquisitions and M&A for growth, but instead we should look for organic growth. And of course, they were always trying to organically grow, but how do we outcompete anyone or how do we develop a new line of equipment? that is not used in the past, but now it is used for future, maybe the next process node, right? The next nanometer chip size, right? That's where they sort of started focusing their efforts all throughout, but especially the last couple of decades, Applied Materials is also in such a well-managed company, right? And that's the other aspect of this is that's helped them propel themselves is one, they've grown in market share, but two, they've also just been so well-managed on a financial basis with capital allocation and things like that. And so- I guess a good place to start with better appreciating the business is explaining it to a layperson in such a way that they can understand kind of the fundamental difference in what it is that applied material produces versus its peers. So maybe just help explain it at the most basic level you can, given what's a pretty complex process. Yeah. So when you manufacture a semiconductor, right, let's say we want to make a five nanometer chip. That's in the iPhone today, and that's in the Mac, and the new device they announced with the Vision goggles and NVIDIA's AI chips. All of these chips are five nanometer chips, actually, interestingly enough. But the process for manufacturing them is very, very complex, right? You start with what's effectively a round circle of silicon, right? It's a crystal silicon structure, and that comes from a different set of companies. But TSMC will buy this silicon wafer. Okay, now they'll polish it and then they'll do a series of steps. And when I say series, I mean thousands of steps between hundreds of different pieces of equipment to slowly build up this chip, 
right? And so it is really a sequential process, right? First you build this and then you build that and then you build this on top of that. And every time in between, you need to do so many different steps. You need to put stuff down, you need to remove it. You need to use lithography to define what you wanna do. And it's a complex set of chemistry. It's a complex set of physics to perfectly arrange atoms on a nanometer precision to make these billions and billions of on-off switches, right? Because that's effectively what a transistor is, is it's an on-off switch. And then you're wiring them with miles and miles of wiring on each chip, many, many layers of metal. Connecting all these transistors together, you have to arrange them perfectly and you have to make sure everything works. And when you talk about Six Sigma, Six Sigma in manufacturing, where you have certain defect rate, that's okay. If you talk about thousands of steps, Six Sigma on tens of thousands of steps would actually kill you, right? In semiconductor manufacturing. So you have to be way better than Six Sigma in manufacturing. And so there's all these various different kinds of steps. And that's the thing that's hard to appreciate is what are all of these steps, right? I mean, it's far too deep for us to go into today, but let's just give one specific example of a specific step, right? Which is, it's called CMP, chemical mechanical planarization. And what it is, is you can think of it as you're just literally sanding the wafer, right? So you get this flat wafer and you're putting stuff on it. You're removing stuff from it. You're putting stuff on it. You're removing stuff from it. But many times what you're doing is you're just sending it to the CMP tool, which is something applied materials, and you're just polishing it. You're polishing it, not to nanometer precision. In fact, you're polishing it to sub-nanometer precision, atoms, even atoms thickness. And it's basically like you're sanding the wafer So you can get a perfectly flat structure so you can then go on and do your subsequent steps, right? And this is an area that applied materials is effectively a monopoly, especially on the most advanced chips. And they're the only one making the tools for it. But it's also, when you look at the total cost of equipment into a fab, this is less than 3%. It's just one of many franchises that applied materials has. There's so many different ones, right? All of these pieces of equipment do something different. And they need to be arranged perfectly in a perfect order and used to the right degrees. That's sort of the magic sauce of a company like TSMC. But they need this equipment, which is perfect, right? Like I mentioned, Six Sigmas would kill you on thousands of processing steps. You couldn't get functional chips if you had Six Sigma. So you have to be way more accurate. So these pieces of equipment are so well-tuned and perfectly calibrated and so on and so forth. That's sort of the secret sauce of these equipment companies. And so how does the equipment business translate into the financial profile of the business? How big is it? What do the margins look like? How has it grown? And what are the key contributors of that growth? Just to translate the qualitative into the quantitative. Sure. So the equipment is initially sold per piece of equipment, right? You sell the equipment and that is done generally by applied materials and 45%-ish gross margin range right? That's sort of the long-term, a little bit over, hair over in recent years. That's where most of the revenue comes from. But also because this equipment is so complex, right? You're actually not just selling them the equipment. You're also selling them a service alongside it, right? Hey, we're going to repair this equipment. Hey, we're going to constantly make sure it's calibrated. Hey, we're going to provide you spare parts. Hey, we're going to upgrade it for this and that reason, right? This technical specification needs to change in this way for the next generation of chips. So you actually end up with something like 25% of applied materials business actually being servicing equipment that they've already sold. And so you've got this general, pretty solid gross margin of like 45%, a little bit above, but then you have R&D because this is a tremendously expensive in R&D, right? Applied materials spends two to $3 billion in R&D. I think this year it's going to be a little bit over $3 billion of R&D every year. And so you're looking at that being like 13, 14% of their revenue is R&D. The rest of the expenses, besides the cost of goods sold, which is roughly half of the equipment cost and manufacturing and so on and so forth, 
besides that, there's a whole lot of profitability here, right? So you end up with a company where their operating margins are in the 20% range, which is amazing when you think about they're making 20 billion plus of revenue a year. Some of the more recent years you know, are more like 30%, like 2021 and 2022 or 30%. So huge, huge cash flow is generated. What is the uses of the cash, right? Is this a CapEx intensive business? No, not really. I mean, there is a sizable amount of CapEx, but it's not a huge chunk of their spending, right? And so really something like 80% of their cash flow that's generated from operating activities is actually just turned around and returned to shareholders because outside of R&D and outside of this small sub 15% CapEx, you've got nothing to do with this cash, right? So the profile of the company is very attractive in terms of EPS growth, in terms of capital allocation, in terms of revenue growth. Revenue has grown above 10% for more than a decade on an average basis. If you look at the last five years, it's actually been more like 15%. When you zoom down to the bottom end of the income statement, right, which is, hey, how's operating income grown? And more importantly, how does EPS grown, right? Cash flow has grown more than revenue has grown, which is already 10 to 15%, right, as I mentioned. And then you zoom down to EPS, you have their EPS growing even faster, right? You have EPS growing at nearly 20% on a sustainable basis, like I mentioned with the capital allocation, right? They've taken down something like 30% of their shares in the last eight years or so. They're constantly growing free cash flow faster than they're growing revenue. And revenue, by the way, is growing faster than the general semiconductor industry because the general trends with how complex it is to manufacture semiconductors. And then semiconductors are growing faster than GDP. And so I'm reminded of a company like John Deere, which sells equipment into an industry which is viewed to be cyclical, right? Agriculture. And they've done a great job moving towards a license maintenance model, not too dissimilar to some software businesses where they have this recurring service aspect of their revenue. Applied materials, seemingly their services component of their business has something similar going on as well. But I'm curious from a cyclicality perspective, how this business is exposed to an end market, which semiconductors broadly are viewed as cyclical, but they've bucked the trend in a lot of ways. And I'm curious as to how. Semiconductors in general are quite cyclical, right? Given they're exposed to consumers, exposed to cloud capex, these sorts of things make it an extremely cyclical industry. But at the same time, there's things that applied materials have done to sort of reduce that cyclicality, right? Not to say they've been able to make it go away because peak to trough of business, they still draw down like 35% on revenue. If you look at the 2008 crisis, right? They drew down 35%. If you look at some of the smaller cycles, I think it was 2018, they drew down 20%, right? But at the end of the day, a third of their business, you know, in these drawdowns is going to be the services business because if you purchased equipment, you still need to service it. Otherwise, you're going to lose the value of the equipment that you purchased. The general business is in the high 20s, 30% operating margin range. The services business is even higher because they're dishing away the cyclicality. They're kind of in general services are higher operating margin than, than CapEx based businesses. And then the other side of the story is whenever there's a downturn, they just go buck wild on buying back shares. They see it as an opportunity because they know the business is cyclical. They manage to the cyclicality. There've been periods of time, you know, downturns just a year or two, but they end up buying back like five, six, 7% afloat, right? In that downturn. And then when the market comes back, now they've permanently improved EPS by a significant amount. And you see that with the sort of big drop in the stock in 2022. They bought a lot of stock back. Back in 17, 18 timeframe, they bought a lot of stock back. Back in the 2008 bubble, they bought a lot of stock back at those timeframes. And the other beautiful thing is there hasn't been a time period, at least since the dot-com bubble, where for a two-year period, they didn't grow. 
if you say, okay, year on year was negative this year because of the cycle. But if you take a two-year period, right, they've got this cyclicality sort of managed really well in terms of being able to take advantage of it, but also having the foresight to understand that cycle and know that it's going to be better soon enough, as soon as the cycle turns, but take advantage of it by buying the back stock. In preparing for this conversation, I spent time in the 10K and couldn't help but notice that customer concentration here is more significant than you see in most companies. 20 or 30% of their revenue is exposed to a handful of companies. A, can you just explain the relationship they have with those businesses with Samsung and TSNC and Intel and what that means for how their business is forecasted and how they think about their growth? Yeah. So the relationship between the equipment companies and the biggest fabs in the world is such a close one, right? TSMC spent $30 billion plus last year on CapEx, right? And of that, 80% of it was equipment related to manufacturing semiconductors. The rest would be actually building the fab, the shell that you put all this equipment in and piping around the gas infrastructure, all this sort of stuff. And Intel, same line of reasoning and Samsung, same line of reasoning. So you've got more or less three companies who are spending $30 billion a year on fabs to manufacture chips. The difficulty there is there's concentration on both ends, right? So if I want to buy a specific kind of equipment, in general, there's one two, maybe two, and very rarely three companies that can provide that kind of equipment. And even if there are one, two, or three types of companies, the process is so complex. In broader strokes, you could say, hey, there's three companies that do this. But when you narrow down to exactly the chemical reaction you're trying to induce at what nanometer precision and all this sort of stuff, you actually end up with, ah, there's two, maybe one, right? Companies in this field. And so when TSMC goes from five nanometer to three nanometer, they're introducing various technologies that help them do this, right? They're improving the lithography, of course, which they're working with ASML on, but they're also doing with every piece of equipment, they need to optimize certain things. And so for years, years ahead of before they start manufacturing a three nanometer chip, they're working with the equipment companies on, hey, well, we need to do this, to do this, to do this. And when you go up the chain, it's, hey, we actually need you to make this part of your tool better in this way, or, hey, help us provide suggestions. How do you think we can do this? And so they work intimately together in what is called their research fabs. They'll have these massive fabs and you hear about Intel a lot in Arizona and in Ohio trying to build these fabs and TSMC in Arizona, right? And Samsung in Texas, at least the Amerocentric view. But in reality, all of these companies, Intel, Samsung, and TSMC have one research fab, right? Which is where they conduct all of their research and development. And in that research and development fab, applied materials and ASML and and all the other competitors are deeply embedded with their equipment, their latest versions of the equipment, helping prove out and design and figure out how to manufacture the next generation of chips at high yields. As we mentioned again, the lifeblood of this industry is yields. Fine, I can make one or two chips of that kind, right? I mean, this is the whole story of Intel failing. Yes, they were able to make some chips with 10 nanometer, but they were never able to yield it, right? Whereas TSMC did 10 and, you know, 14, 10 and seven in the timeframe it took Intel to figure out 10 nanometers. And that's because TSMC worked really well on yields. They actually worked really closely with the equipment companies in a way Intel didn't. Intel got a bunch of hubris and thought they didn't need the equipment companies' help as much. You ended up with this situation where the equipment companies really helped TSMC figure out how to do things and worked closely with them, co-developed the tools together, right? Co-engineered them. So yeah, you have customer concentration, but that's also where the strength comes from, right? Because there's only a few customers for a big chunk of the equipment, and there's only a few suppliers, and each of the suppliers is specialized in certain ways. So you end up with the sort of 
business model where the companies like accept that they make decent margins and TSMC makes about a 50 to 60% gross margin and applied materials makes about a 50% gross margin and ASML makes about a 50% gross margin. And while there is always hopes of making higher margins, there's also a lot of mutual respect where it's like, okay, this is an acceptable fair price for what you're doing and all the services you're providing. No one's really trying to do a race to the bottom because how complex this is, right? Especially when you drill down into this, right? Thousands of process steps, each of them are going to be different tuned. In any individual process step, there's only 50 or 100 engineers in the whole world who know such a level. Maybe 15 of them are at Intel, 15 at Samsung, 15 at TSMC, and then the rest at the equipment companies or something like that, right? So when you drill down very, very deeply, there is a huge amount of sort of, let's not say monopolism, but concentration in every regard, right? Of customers and suppliers. But that's also the strength of the business. And so you kind of loosely touched upon it, but if I were Intel or Taiwan Semi, and I wanted to switch away from applied materials equipment, is that even feasible? In certain segments, right? And this is why I think applied materials is maybe less appreciated than a company like ASML, because ASML is a very, very clear, this is 90% of our business, which is lithography. It's one kind of equipment. We have a few versions of it, and each version is better than the last. And in the last generation stuff, there's two competitors, but in the new generation stuff, we're the only one. But it's a very clean story for people to look at and understand. With applied materials, you've got arguably six or seven franchises, right? Lithography is like 20% of a fab's spend of the equipment in a fab. But these other pieces that applied materials is sort of the monopoly in or oligopoly in, many of them are three, 5% right here and there. So I mentioned CMP earlier, it's like 3% of fab spend, but applied materials does 90% of the business there. And so the question is, can I replace applied materials? Well, no, because if I actually look at, you know, it's called chemical mechanical planarization, you end up with this problem of like, hey, who's the other company? There's a company in Japan for this specific vertical. And in that vertical, where do they compete? Well, actually, this company, their tools are really selling into this type of chip, right? And also this type of manufacturing. When I look at a CMP tool for five nanometer, actually applied materials is the only one really selling into it. So then the question is, if I wanted to rip and replace applied materials for this Japanese company? Could I? Maybe. But let's think about the economics of that, right? So this is 3% of my fab spend. And I'm TSMC. I have 40,000 engineers, of which maybe 10,000 are working on the next generation process step. But when I'm talking about just individual process steps, hey, I'm the master at this. I'm the master at that. You're actually looking at, hey, I only have like 20 or so people that are good at it. Now the question is, so for that 20 or so people, here's my area where I can use them, right? I could either spend them on A, figuring out how to use the inferior equipment from this other second tier supplier and replace applied materials, or B, I could figure out, well, instead of that, maybe I want to spend them spending their time on improving the yields. Every chip has billions of transistors, right? An iPhone smartphone chip has tens of billions of transistors, and there's hundreds of chips of those on each wafer that I manufacture. Do I want to spend the time making sure I can replace this equipment or do I want to spend the time making it so Apple's really happy with me because I was able to get 5% more chips per yielding or I was able to improve the performance by 5% because I improved the electrical characteristics. So I'm going to spend those 20 engineers who are super focused on CMP and that's all they do and that's all they know. I'm going to spend them on actually designing the next process node or improving the output 
or improving the performance. I'm not going to spend them on switching out equipment for a second tier supplier who perhaps their equipment can't even work here, or I need to walk them through all of these years of engineering where at 14 nanometer, we use the equipment in this way. And for 10 nanometer, we modified it and we did this. And at seven nanometer, we modified it and we did this. And at five, we upgraded it and did this, right? So on and so forth. Do I want to lead them through all of these changes, handhold them because they weren't there. They weren't helping me. They weren't co-engineering. They weren't spending their 20 guys who were experts at this working on this problem. And funnily enough, right? When you look at even the areas where the equipment is more competitive, not necessarily CMP, but some of these other areas around etch and deposition where it is a bit more competitive, it's actually still ends up being, well, LAM Research, which is another competitor, their etch tool is better at this kind of etch with this kinds of chemistry. And then applied materials is better at this one. And so you have different teams working with them on improving that specific one, right? Like we're going to use it for this step, this tool from applied materials and step B, we're going to use LAM Research. And then you kind of still have this hyper-specialization. And so if I kind of assess what the future of applied materials looks like, what are two of the three most important things you think that will contribute to their continued growth from here and where they have a leading position? One of them is these sort of industries, verticals where they're the monopoly, right? And so this is going to be areas like epitaxial growth, CMP, ion implant, RTP annealing, PVD. So these are some of the areas where applied materials is going to remain 70% plus share. Then there's other areas where applied materials is really gearing up to fight their competitors, right? So one of them is they released a new tool. They call it pattern engineering. And the whole point is they're trying to fight with lithography in some types of process steps. Not all of them, right? But some areas they want to fight with lithography. And if that's successful, then they can take billions of revenue from ASML. That's a huge, huge opportunity. There's other areas that are related to, hey, as we continue shrinking, which is, hey, at three nanometer and at two nanometer and at 1.4 nanometer, so on and so forth, there's going to be changes to the chip. We don't just shrink the transistors and go about our day. Actually, there's meaningful changes on changing the shape of the transistor, right? It's called gate all all around. It's called nanowire, that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of tremendous opportunity in, hey, there's brand new process steps, right? Can we compete to insert our tool into that brand new process step? Can we co-engineer with the partners to do this? That's a sort of another really key thing to hope for or watch in applied materials. But then the third is just continuing to execute, right? Because you can try and go super deep into what exactly each of these is and how it's going. But you can also zoom out and say they've just consistently grown, right? Because the industry consistently grows and semiconductor industry is consistently growing above GDP. The equipment industry is consistently growing above semiconductor. And then applied materials is consistently growing above that. The dark side or potential negative is they don't, but most likely they do, especially with the increasing politicization of the industry. The industry is so politically important, right? And so you see this in the form of subsidies, right? Yes, there's the stick that the governments are waving around, but there's also the carrot, right? Which is, hey, the US has $52 billion in the CHIPS Act, plus a tax credit, which is estimated to be something like $30 billion. And that tax credit is specifically on equipment purchases, right? Japan is spending something like 30 to $40 billion. Europe is spending something like $40 billion. China, it's harder to sum up their tax breaks because a lot of it's in like subsidized loans. Estimates I've seen are something like 200 to $250 billion on the semiconductor industry, right? You're looking at hundreds of billions of dollars that are flowing in 
to the semiconductor industry. And all of this eventually flows to the picks and shovels, right? Which is applied materials. That's sort of the viewpoint you could take with a lot of this geopolitical tension is it's actually tremendously positive for applied materials and their business. And while the industry is going through a bit of a downturn and there's going to be some cyclicality, these subsidies sort of help make it less cyclical from the perspective of applied materials, right? Because now instead of cutting back because orders are weak, it's like, we're going to cut back because orders are weak, but oh, hey, we have all these subsidy dollars that we're going to spend anyways. And so if I kind of look across the semi-cap industry, A, how many billions of dollars are we talking about? And then at a high level, what are kind of the market share nuances look like? Or how do you think about market share when you're assessing whether someone is gaining or losing share? In the semiconductor fabrication industry, the fabs such as TSMC, Intel, Samsung, Micron, SK Hynix, the list goes on and on, spent about $100 billion, a little bit less last year. They're going to spend a little bit less than $100 billion again this year. The projections are they're going to spend less than $100 billion, but a little bit less than $100 billion next year, right? So somewhere in that $90 billion range, just because there's some macroeconomic issues. But in the past, they used to have been growing from 50 to 70 to 90. So they're going to spend that amount of equipment. And then you can sort of divvy it up, right? You can either say, A, hey, applied materials sells 20% and ASML sells 20% and LAM research sells 15%. You could view it like that. You could take the other view, which is actually ASML and applied materials do not compete with each other at all. There's a few small niches, but for the most part, 90% plus of the business does not compete with each other, even though they're the two biggest companies in the space. Why? Because they don't make equipment that's the same. They make completely different equipment. And these different pieces of equipment are used for different types of processes. So in reality, you could actually dive down and look at market share in a completely different way. This $100 billion pie, more or less, is split into how much are we spending on lithography? How much are we spending on deposition? How much are we spending on etch? Of that deposition spend, how much are we spending on physical vapor deposition? How much are we spending on sputtering? How much are we spending on chemical vapor deposition? How much are we spending on atomic layer deposition? Then you could go even deeper, like, okay, well, just for atomic layer deposition, is it thermal or is it plasma? So you can spend a lot of time going deeper and deeper and deeper and breaking out the market to where you're finally at. Okay, this is the segment where two companies actually do compete and it's a billion dollar segment, right? And this company has 800 million and this company has 200 million. You can go that deep and really splice up the industry, which is the sort of stuff we do. But in general, how to assess market shares, unless you're going that deep, it's easier to just say, hey, look at the revenue of the company, remove out the services business, because the services business, while it is 25, 30% of the company's revenue, it's not the CapEx, not the wafer fabrication equipment, it's services. And then look at where that is. How is that growing or shrinking across the industry? And in reality, it ends up being quite stable. Every once in a while, you have a technology inflection, like with ASML and EUV lithography, where it goes from 18% to 22%. So a pretty big shift of total spend. And obviously, the rest of the industry does lose a little bit. But at the end of the day, that spend change is still minuscule compared to long-term applied materials has been 20%. And they remain about 20%. They've grown a little bit as consolidation has happened in the industry, but that's sort of a better way to look at market share. As I was explaining earlier, it's so complex. These process steps are so different that you don't actually end up with so much competition and so much market share. You've done a great job outlining what this business does well and why it's well positioned for the future. But if I were to speak to an applied material skeptic or a bear, what would they be cautious about in regard to the company's future? Where are the significant risks in this story? 
The biggest risk that faces applied materials is definitely the China risk. And now the China risk is multiple fold. One is just Chinese companies stop buying applied materials tools, which is something that even the U.S. government is assisting in in some regards. But the more concerning thing is that the Chinese equipment market is developing and it's developing rapidly. They're still nowhere close to what applied materials can do in many areas, but there are some tools that the Chinese equipment market is starting to be able to produce. There's numerous Chinese equipment companies, NARA and ACMR, and the list goes on and on of companies attempting to make equipment. Some are not successful at all yet, especially in certain places like Litho and Dry Edge, but there's other places where they are getting significant market share, things like cleans. And so these segments, it's all about just tackling sub-segment, being good, being much cheaper, and having you know the companies switch over to that tool and you lose out some market share. And then a lot of the new fabs, 30% or 25% are being built in China anyways. So there's a lot of switching that could happen if these companies get up to snuff and actually can compete with applied materials and land research and so on and so forth. And so this is the biggest risk for applied materials is that there is a switching that true competitors do get built up by all the subsidies that China is pushing and all the domestic nationalization that China is pushing. And they haven't seen a new competitor in decades. It's been an oligopoly of sorts where everyone's kept pricing power and no one's chased margins down. But what happens if there's a competitor who sort of is let's say, irrational by the Western sense of competition, completely rational to the Chinese, with subsidies chasing the market down and trying to cut costs and be much cheaper to get market share before they even try and make a profit. And so we've somehow gotten this deep into the conversation without mentioning artificial intelligence. So I, I commend both of us for that. But question being, this, this shift towards the importance of semiconductors in relation to the compute demands of AI. Are there implications for applied materials that are important to consider? Yeah. So I think one interesting thing just to note about the equipment companies is they see things earlier than the rest of the industry. In fact, if you look back at old investor days from applied materials, they were talking about the PC era pretty early because guess what? Intel needed to place orders for the PC era. They saw that firsthand. For the mobile era, same way. They saw that they were saying this sort of stuff. And then for the era of AI, they were talking about AI. Obviously, everybody was talking about AI, but they were saying this is like literally the next era of the semiconductor industry, right? You cannot build an NVIDIA AI chip without applied materials equipment. They have all this equipment and it's required. You can't make a chip. And with AI, seven nanometer, five nanometer, three nanometer, these transitions are increasingly important. For a bit of times, there was a bit of a bearish view maybe a year or two ago, where if you were talking about like, hey, mobile kind of stopped. Mobile doesn't grow anymore. And Apple doesn't have the ability to continue to increase pricing on their end customers. And obviously, Android just follows the route. And PC stopped growing. So what do we need three nanometer for? What do we need two nanometer for? But then it's like, oh, all of a sudden, everybody's like, yeah, we need three nanometer and two nanometer because these models are so complex to run and so hard to run that going and shrinking is going to provide so much benefit. And because of that, it's like 30% more process steps when you go from five to three nanometers, right? And that 30% more process steps also involves some modification of the equipment as well. So you're looking at generative AI being tremendously positive to companies like Applied Materials because hey, we need a lot more semiconductors, right? We need more memory, we need more processors, we need more all of this, and it's all manufactured with applied materials as well as their peers' equipment. And so our concluding question is typically lessons that can be borrowed from the applied materials stories and applied to 
other companies from both an investor perspective and then an operator perspective. What are kind of those key lessons for you when you look at this business across everyone else in your very, very wide range of coverage across semiconductors? Yeah. So I think one of the beautiful things about applied materials is, hey, they are in a cyclical industry and one of the most cyclical industries, right? We're talking about 35% drawdown in revenue. Some of the times historically, they didn't let that shake them, right? They always took the long-term view. They always continued to invest in R&D. Sometimes it was 15% of R&D in these drawdowns. Hey, it shot up to 20% plus. They took that long-term view. They said, hey, I need to work closely with my customers because right now it sucks for both of us, but let's continue to work very deeply on the R&D. And when it comes back, we'll be entrenched more solidly, right? They'll need to use us more and more and they'll understand that we're a long-term partner. We are not just a opportunistic company. And so that long-term partner is incredibly important, right? As a company in a space that's concentrated, even if you weren't concentrated, this being a long-term partner helps them with the rest of their business, which is, hey, we're not building the most advanced fab. We're not selling to Samsung. We're not selling to Intel. We're selling to TSMC. Actually, we're selling to this other company, right? Like Texas Instruments, or we're selling to NXP on Semiconductor and all these other fabs out there that are not making the most advanced chip. Well, all of that fed back in. Now we can do better and better there as well. We can help them in so many ways because we have access to this. So that's the other flip side of the coin is if you have concentrated customers constantly investing in R&D, even when business looks tough, knowing that there is a light on the end of the tunnel, and maybe that's a bit of a risk, but also using that to feed back to the less concentrated customers, hey, being able to use that R&D to help them. And also the services. There's two ways to look at the services business, which is I used to sell you equipment and I hate that and I want a subscription. Or two, I can look at it as, hey, I want to actually make it so you're getting the most output out of your equipment which is really what Applied Materials is doing. They're saying, hey, this is our equipment, buy it. But also let's make sure you get every single chip you can out of that. Let's make sure you can utilize it as much as possible because that's going to make you more profitable and that's just going to make you want to invest more in our equipment. That's the other flip side of the coin. And especially with the smaller customers who don't have the capability of servicing nearly as much. This is incredibly important, right? TSMC will have some more of their own technicians on site that are experts on specific kinds of tools, but what about the smaller customers? They don't have that capability, but because you're offering it to them, you're helping them be a better business. So I think that's also important is this commitment to your customer, your end customer is really important. Well, this is a fascinating business that I know you can speak for hours about. I think you did a great job summarizing the basis of the business and its competitive advantages going forward. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I had a blast. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 